Hello, hello. John Elder here, science editor with The New Daily. Welcome to our podcast, What Does That Mean? Science, health and the social fabric is our beat. In this bumper episode, we discover that some energy drinks contain high levels of a carcinogenic agent. It's turning up by accident as a byproduct of the manufacturing process. And until now, the makers were probably unaware it was happening. An even stranger tale is that of the ghost of an exploding star that has been haunting Earth for 33,000 years. Meet the bird that saves its song for the full moon. Find out why women are clamming up about their birth experiences and ponder how technology is changing the social dynamic of mental health care because of COVID-19. But first... According to Ovarian Cancer Research Foundation, this year, more than 1,800 Australian women will be diagnosed with ovarian cancer, and that by 2025, about a thousand of those women will be dead. There is no early detection test for ovarian cancer, and many of the warning signs, like abdominal pain or pressure, sudden abdominal swelling, weight gain or bloating, unexplained weight loss, low backache or cramps, and unusual feelings of fullness, gas, nausea, or indigestion, tend to be written off as everyday unwellness. Up to one in five cases can be linked to specific gene mutations, but there is no known cause for the remainder of ovarian cancer cases. Complicating this even further is that 50% of women believe ovarian cancer can be prevented by a vaccine, and it's not the case. This was one finding of a survey of Australian women by the University of Melbourne and the Ovarian Cancer Research Foundation. Here to discuss those findings is Dr. Cassie Haywood, Senior Lecturer, Melbourne School of Psychological Sciences. Hello, Cassie. Hi, thanks for having me. All right, look, tell us about the prevalence of these misconceptions around the prevention and detection of ovarian cancer. Yeah, it was it was it was surprising to find how um, how high these stats were of, of women who think that a, a cervical test or a pap test could could detect um, could detect ovarian cancer. Um, so this survey was done as part of our Master of Applied Psychology um, research project, and, and so our students worked with the Ovarian Cancer Research Foundation to do a survey of women looking at, at awareness and, and perceptions of ovarian cancer. <clears throat> and as you highlighted, one of the main findings come at, coming out of this survey was, so we got 68% of women thinking that a cervical test can detect ovarian cancer, which it can't. 65% of women thinking there's an early detection test for ovarian cancer, and there isn't. 64% of women believing a pap test can detect ovarian cancer and it can't. And the, the one you mentioned in your intro that 50% believing that that HPV vaccine protects against ovarian cancer and it doesn't. So what this means is a lot of women are thinking that their um, you know, regular female health checks are going to pick up something like ovarian cancer and, and that's not going to happen. It seems and specifically there's a confusion between cervical cancer and cervical tests 
and, Correct. and trouble with the ovaries. Correct. So, and, and, you know, the HPV vaccine does protect against cervical cancer. So I think where some of the, the misperceptions come from that um, confusion. Um, and also I think just that a lot of the, the warning signs of ovarian cancer are fairly, you know, common female, you know, feelings. You, you talked about them in your intro, but abdominal pain, cramps, feelings of fullness, nausea and indigestion, they're, they're not things that women automatically, uh, you know, feel and then think that something serious is is wrong with them. So those things together mean that um, a lot of ovarian cancer isn't detected until the very late stages where the chance of surviving is is really low. Um, there's two, the, there's the, two things there. One, it does sort of seem that there's, there's a bit of a burden on women to kind of develop a, a greater awareness that those symptoms that you could relate to diet and, and or, or menstrual cycle or, or, or other things um, could in fact be something much more serious. There seems to be a bit of a, a sort of a, a burden of responsibility for, for women to be aware of that because um, clinically there's not, there's not much on offer. Um, yeah. The other thing that I thought was very interesting is that uh, women under 30 were particularly prone to conflating the idea that the HPV vaccine would protect them against ovarian cancer. So that that seems to have given them a false sense of security. Yeah, and, and look, if, you, if we take our survey findings and we look at just those women under the age of 30, that figure jumped to 75% thinking that that cervical test or a pap test um, wow. would would um, pick up ovarian cancer and similarly similar figures for the for the um, the HPV vaccine preventing it. So it does seem to to you know the knowledge does seem to increase a little bit with age, but it's not it's not saying that you know older women have a, a great knowledge of these of these stats either. Um, and I and I think it's the one of the the issues that Ovarian Cancer Research Foundation is really focused on is getting support and funding for an early detection test because that really does seem to be the only way that they'll get good results for women with ovarian cancer. Are you aware of making any progress towards that at all? There are, there are some, some research areas that are, are proving fruitful, but it doesn't seem to be something that's on the near horizon. Yeah. Um, but um, I guess what's what's hopeful is that when ovarian cancer is detected in those early stages, survival rate is over ninety percent. Um, so, it, but that detecting it at that early rate is really rare. So, a, a vast majority, seventy five percent of cases, are only diagnosed at those most advanced stages where the survival rate is is pretty grim. Um, and as you say, the the other signs and symptoms that women have to keep an eye out for are just not things that they're necessarily going to run to their GP, you know, when they feel bloated or or, or have a cramp. So um, it, it really does seem that the the um, the early detection test is going to be the thing that really helps break through um, that that barrier in in survival rates. The results of this survey really need to be uh, put out to GPs. It certainly um, indicates that. Um, female health issues need to be um, better covered, whether it be through, um, you know, school health programs, 
public health education programs, um, GP tests, and maybe even um, you know getting this into the conversation when women go for their regular um, you know cervical screening tests or, or pap tests that, that that conversation can can come up that this isn't something that covers ovarian cancer. Look, I think these are really important findings, and thank you, Cassie Haywood, for coming on today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. All hail the bottle blonde. To bleach your hair or your teeth, people are known to use hydrogen peroxide. Given at certain concentrations, it can blister your skin and you wouldn't think that you'd want to drink it. In fact, hydrogen peroxide is naturally produced in the body and it is used in some foods as a sanitization agent. But a study led by Professor Louise Bennett from the Monash School of Chemistry has found that people may be exposed to harmful levels of hydrogen peroxide when they consume some energy drinks. Hello, Louise. G'day, John. How are you going? I'm all right. I'm all right. Um, not bad. So, look, firstly, tell us why hydrogen peroxide is produced in the body and at what concentration? Yeah, sure. Look, uh, hydrogen peroxide is, a, is an essential signalling molecule in the body. It's known as a second messenger. So it's associated with, with um, metabolic activity and in particular mitochondrial activity. But, but when the body uh, produces hydrogen peroxide and it uses it to switch proteins on and off and, and, and many, many other uh, roles, it's only produced in nanomolar levels. So that's a, a, a very low level, about, um, in fact, one, one over 15,000-fold lower than what we measured in our, in our energy drinks. All right. So what led you to look at, look at um, hydrogen peroxide in energy drinks because... Um it seems to be quite a lateral, a lateral move. It, look, it, perhaps it does. Uh, it builds on some research that's uh, going on in my group where we're interested in the roles of phytonutrients and how they confer health. So, so usually people think of phytonutrients as uh, that they're thinking about antioxidants and, of course, there's a lot of um, media and, and a lot of um, publications around the health properties of antioxidants, but they can be double-edged. And what I mean by that is that they can sometimes produce what we call ROS or reactive oxygen species, and that's what hydrogen peroxide is. Right. So what we were looking for were, were foods that contain uh, natural or, or levels of antioxidants, and we, were, we hypothesised that they actually might sometimes produce the prooxidant species as well. Okay, so I guess the short version is you. This led you to look at energy drinks, and, and what did you find? Well, that's right. So, so uh, energy drinks, and, and of course, many other beverages naturally contain antioxidants, and, and we know that some of those are, are good for us. And we know about you know red wine and, and coffee and tea and so on. But but the the difference with uh, this set of be uh, beverages that we we looked at were that these are formulated beverages, and they they sometimes don't have any of the natural uh, protections that some of those other sorts of drinks I talked about. So uh, 
we, we looked at a set of them, about 40, and of, the, of those 40, 28 were energy drinks and about uh, five out of the 28 had quite, you know, high levels, very highly measurable levels of hydrogen peroxide. So I, I think you found up to five milligrams per kilogram, and that's actually, but that's actually allowed in Australia, isn't it? Uh, that's right. So, look, our, our measured levels were, were even below what is allowed in Australia, but that's Australia, and there are plate parts of the world that don't allow any uh, hydrogen peroxide in, in a, a residue in a, in a food or a beverage. So, you know, and what we do know is that the levels we found uh, we, we, in, in research we've done since then, we can see it's very stable, and we, we just know that these levels are much higher than what's naturally produced in the body. So, so when you couple that with the fact that you're drinking, you know, 200 or, 50 or 350 mils in one go, uh, we, we think that there could be some um, health risk in that. Is the hydrogen peroxide sort of a, a, an accidental consequence of the manufacturing or is it uh, purposely, purposely introduced into the drink? Yeah, look, that's a really important question and to explain, which is uh, the, the former. So it's a, it's a consequence of, of chemical reactivity between some ingredients. So it is absolutely not added to the bottle. Of course, um, the, the, the beverage industry wouldn't be doing that. So it's, it's just something that I think they're not aware of. It's, it's a consequence of selected ingredients reacting. As a matter of fact, with ascorbic acid is the main culprit. Uh, that are producing this this hydrogen peroxide. Now, you've sort of suggested, and and obviously this needs to be investigated, that this could be one of the reasons why some energy drinks uh, have been linked with um, later cancers. Is that right? Well, look, it is. I mean, the, the evidence is is quite um, a weaker link, a weak link at the moment because sure, it's associative. associative. That's exactly right. So there are two studies in particular that I do cite in our publication. One one is is a bit older. Um, it, it's a observational from the period of 1977 to 2006, and that um, exposed an unexplained increase in gastric cancer in 25 to 13 39 year old people. Uh, right. And that's a category that would consume these energy drinks. Uh, and then a second study in Australia uh, showed an elevated risk of also of gastric cancer associated with sugar, sweet and soft drinks. So, again, that's a broad category. So neither of these studies have, 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 have demonstrated that energy drinks is the problem, but, but you know, we've got some evidence now that, uh, that, that these, the hydrogen peroxide is present in quite a number of them. So what's the next step? Do you do you alert manufacturers and say, hey, look, I don't know if you realise this, but you're, you're producing quite high levels of hydrogen peroxide in your manufacturing process and maybe you need to address it? We're moving along that path. I mean, we're, we're absolutely open to uh, assisting manufacturers to identify which of the ingredients in their formulation are causing the problem. Uh, and, and really, that, that's the most likely solution to probably avoid uh, some specific ingredients. Right. And is there any particular reason why Australia does allow a higher level of, of hydrogen peroxide in foods? Or, is it, or again, is it sort of one of those things that has just sort of happened and bypassed regulation or hasn't really been on the radar? 
Look, I, I don't think it's on the radar in this context, which is, and this reflects, you know, the thinking that, you know, if you have one bioactive ingredient in, in a food, then if you've got two or three or five, you're probably five times better. But but that thinking, you've got to be careful of that when you're talking yeah. about reactive compounds. Yeah, very interesting. I mean, it, it opens up a, a whole range of uh, interesting questions, doesn't it? I mean, the what could be accidentally produced in your food by way of a manufacturing process, and maybe the manufacturers don't even know. Not to not to be overly uh, freaky about it, but still, yeah, it's it's an interesting question. I agree with you. Yes. Right. Thanks very much for your time. Yeah, thank you, John. Uh, my pleasure. past 33,000 years, the Earth has been travelling through a cloud of faintly radioactive dust, the ghost of a long-ago exploded star or supernova. Remnants of that ghost have been found in the sediments of the sea floor. What does this mean for the history of the Earth, or even the whole universe? Here to light up our day is Dr. Brad Tucker from the Research School of Astronomy and Astrophysics, Mount Stromlo Observatory at the Australian National University. Hello, Brad. How's it going? It's going okay. It's going cosmic. So <laughs> what are these sediments from the seafloor and what, what, what story do they tell? Yeah, this is an interesting thing because people are looking at essentially, you know, soil samples to some degree, um, but digging into the, to the ocean floor and finding elements of what we call iron 60. So iron 60 uh, is is a, a radioactive type of iron. So the normal iron, you may think, is iron 56. In this case, what you're having is extra neutrons added to this thing, creating it radioactive. And the only way that we know of that this is produced is in an exploding star, a supernova. Yeah. So I read that this possibly came from a star that may have exploded about 2 million years ago just as Homo erectus, our most successful human species, by the way, was coming onto the scene. Uh, it was a star about 325 light years away, it collapsed, exploded, and, and, and would have actually been visible in the night sky. More, In fact, uh, the bluish uh, tinge brighter than the, uh, the full moon. Is that, is, that, is that right? Yeah, you know, in order for us to actually get radioactive elements here on Earth, the star must be relatively close, you know, within a couple of hundred light years. Um, and there's parallels to, to Betelgeuse. We think Betelgeuse, the big red supergiant uh, in Orion, may explode at some point. That, too, uh, would be visible. We don't think there'd be much radioactivity from that. It's a bit further away um, than what this case is. Um, but, you know, I, you know, this isn't, I guess, entirely surprising from a, an astronomy standpoint. I think it's interesting to do the measurements from a, an Earth and human standpoint. As you said, we expect that and a galaxy about the size of Milky Way. So we would expect about an exploding star every 100 years. So, you know, you give millions of years, you expect a number of these stars to explode and a few of them to be in, in the vague area or at least uh, as we pass the vague area uh, of our solar system. 
One of the things I've read, and as I mentioned, that if this star blew or was seen to have blown too many years ago, then Homo erectus would have seen it. But one theory is that a, a supernova could have actually played a part in the rise of, of the human species or the, or, the, or the human lineage, I should say, um, partly for its effect, I guess, on our atmosphere and partly from the effect of, of, of radiation. Uh, is, is that right? Yeah, look, it's it's not necessarily all bad. I think we always yeah hear these terms radiation and we think, oh, you know, it's the end of everything. Um, but, you know, sunlight, that is a form of radiation. And if it's far away enough, as you said, the consequences could uh, be, be slightly beneficial or have, you know, not necessarily the negative effect you may think. Uh, and it would have been visible. This would have been a very bright object. Whatever was on this planet, you know, whatever animal, whatever, you know, the Homo erectus as it's evolving, even if it happened to us today, you would notice this event uh, and it would have some effect of heating and radioactivity uh, on the atmosphere. And I, and I think, again, the story is also that it, this may not be the only one. This is, may have happened multiple times in the history of our planet. So when we read that the Earth has basically been traveling through this radioactive dust, faintly radioactive dust, for 33,000 years, we conclude that, well, the, that the remnants of that far, far away explosion you know, finally arrived uh, in, our, in our neighborhood 33,000 years ago. Yeah, the, the, these things explode and, and they puff out. And when the stars explode, they produce the, the beautiful nebula, um, as we sometimes see. And eventually that is cooled back together to form new stars and, and new planets. And you know, we are from these sort of same explosions in space. But it takes time, right? You know, it takes hundreds of thousands, millions of years for the, the material to heat and cool um, and then eventually recombine or come back together to form new stuff. And in that time, we go around the solar system. We know we take about 200 to 220 million years to do a lap around our galaxy. So we're going to be passing through these pockets and it takes time for our solar system to travel through because it's not just the Earth that have been bombarded by this stuff, but Mercury and Venus and Mars uh, and the outer planets as well. Now, of course, our hearts actually pump blood that is full of iron, born in stars, but it's not the isotope iron, is it, that we've got no, in our No, that's cells? right. It, it's, a, it's a bit more of the normal uh, safe iron that people <laughs> like to know and love. But all of it is still equally created in these supernova, and that's the, that's the exciting thing because this is a, an element or, or an isotope. You can say, all right, there is not another process that creates it, whereas you could say, well, there's lots of things that can create iron. It happens normally. How can you pinpoint that in particular from a certain time, but because of the radioactive half-life of iron-60, um, knowing how it's produced, it gives us a pretty clear window on when this explosion would have happened, and therefore we can pinpoint, are there known explosions around that age that would have caused this? A little bit closer to Earth, Venus is in the news. There's evidence or some excitement of potential evidence for life on Venus, which on the one hand you'd think is kind of impossible because it's, it, it's hard to think of a more uh, hostile place, but um, what's all the excitement about? Yeah, the, the detective is phosphine gas, phosphine being phosphorus and three hydrogen. So again, one of these other uh, slight isotopes or, or molecules really um, that can form just like CO2 or H2O. But in this case, phosphine is, is produced on Earth 
by microbes in caves. So that's exciting because that's a sign or that's produced by life. So when we look at Venus and this discovery that saw this in the atmosphere of Venus, uh, solid phosphine went through a very rigorous process of trying to figure out what it may not be, you know, what didn't create this, realized they didn't know of anything uh, that existed on Venus that can produce this phosphine. And, and leaving him with the two possibilities of there's an unknown chemical or chemistry, geochemistry, you know, planetary process on Venus we don't know about, which is completely likely, or it was the result of, again, bacteria and microbes producing it. And uh, that obviously raises a bit of excitement when we talk about understanding the evolution and, and discovery of life, and in particular, how Venus evolved. So basically, the excitement is, is because our understanding of phosphine is is basically we only know that know it to come from from life. We don't know it to come from uh, other means. Is that is that the thinking? Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, and we look at if we look at parallels to Mars, everyone's so fascinated with Mars and looking for life. And Mars has things like varying methane. So we see seasonal changes and yearly changes of the methane. And methane again is produced by lots of life um, here on Earth. Uh, and again, it could be something we don't know, but in the quantities and the volume we're seeing, it's a strong sign that it could be from a life form. And then here when we look at Venus and how inhospitable it is, and yet this thing, there may be a thing um, living on there, uh, not only is exciting, but it just shows the parameters for what we have to think about for life uh, and what it may hold. And look, keeping in mind, Venus is closer to Earth than Mars. Uh, so if we do want to explore this question, it's a tad easier to get to Venus than it is to Mars. All right, look, my rocket's about to launch off the off the pad, so I better go. Great talking to you, Brad. Thanks, John. Willy Wagtails, gutsy as hell. They will chase off birds two or three times their size to defend their territory. Their famous white eyebrows can make them look pretty scary if they come at you by surprise. So you wouldn't ordinarily think of them as the most soulful creature. But new research has found that the males sing to the full moon. The bigger the moon the bigger the song. Ashton Dickerson is a PhD candidate from the School of Biosciences at the University of Melbourne. She led the research. Hello, Ashton. Hi, thanks for having me on today to chat. Very good. Look, it's a lovely piece of research. What prompted you to follow this line of inquiry? Yeah, growing up, I've always loved birds. For me, whether you're in the city or the country area, there's birds everywhere in the trees and you get to hear them singing. So I've always had that fascination with birds. But willy wagtails are particularly interesting because they're this diurnal species, which means they're mostly active during the day, but they have this peculiar behaviour where they also sing at night. Now, it's long been believed that willy wagtails will sing more during a full moon, but it's always been sort of a folklore. It's never been backed by science. So I found that really interesting, and I set out to test whether or not this story was true. Okay. So how did you, how did you do it? 
Well, step one, there was a lot of nights, um, there was a lot of midnight field trips where I'd go out and actually search for these willy wagtails that were singing <laughs> at night. So that bit was a little bit painful. But thankfully for me, willy wagtails tend to sing from the same spot every night. So once I found where willy wagtails were singing at night, I was able to use these special audio recorders, which are designed to be used outdoors for long periods of time. And I could attach them to the trees where they were singing. And then I would record that nighttime song for over an entire lunar month. Um, So you were able to then record the intensity uh, of the song from night to night. Yep, exactly right. And it was great because I collected 500 hours of nighttime audio, but obviously that a lot of audio and that would be a bit painful to listen to all of it. But just like we can train technology to recognize human voice, that also worked with bird song. So I actually used automatic song detection software to find out how much they were singing at night. And what was the, if, if you had to sort of think, okay, go to a night without the moon and then through to um, when, when it's a full moon, uh, how bigger, how longer was the song? Are you able to somehow quantify it? Yeah, so when birds sing, they tend to sing in what we call bouts. So they'll sing, 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 and then they'll have a break for a while and then they might have another song bout again. Um, So one of the things I also recorded was how long those bouts lasted for. So that kind of gives me um, an indication of how often they're singing and how much they're singing when they do. So when when it was the full moon... What was happening? Was it were these longer bouts? Was the song actually different? Was it more complex? How, what was the difference there? Yeah, so with willy wagtails, I mean, like if you think of some of our other Australian species like magpies that have these really complicated songs, that warbling, willy wagtails are a little bit different that they have simple songs and they sing less kinds of songs. So For this bird species that doesn't have a lot of kinds of songs, it might be particularly important for how often they're actually singing. So that's where we saw the difference in relation to the moon with the willy wagtail. Um, So so the the bouts would be of of greater frequency. Yeah, the the more the song rate, so the number of songs with these guys. So they would sing more, more and more and more as it gets brighter at night. All right, very good. So now the question of why they do this remains unanswered, but one theory is it's because they're perhaps trying to attract extra mates for extra breeding opportunities. Yeah, exactly right. So if we think about birdsong, the two main functions are firstly territory defence and the second one is that mate attraction. So it's important to have someone to be building nests with, laying eggs with over that breeding season. But birds do this funny thing where they're what we call socially monogamous So there'll be a male and a female and they'll live together as a pair, but sometimes the male or the female will sneak off to the neighbours or some other nearby willy wagtails and actually mate with them as well. Um, So, yeah, we wonder if this nighttime singing from the willy wagtails might be a cue to try and um, encourage those extra pair matings, we call them. Well, there's no no greater yearning than adultery, is there? I mean, that's right. I think it's 60, 68%, I remember, of, of passerines, um, the perching birds. The females are the ones who go out and and uh, get it on with as many males as they possibly can. So uh, just, to, just to put that in there so we're not thinking, oh, it's just the males being their dirty selves again. 
<laughs> hey, listen, keep us posted if you get more developments on the Willy Wagtail figuring out exactly why uh, or whatever. I'd love to hear about it. Thanks for coming on. No problem. I'll definitely let you know. About one in five Australians are dealing with mental illness in any one year, and that's according to the Black Dog Institute. We hear a lot about patients having difficulty accessing services when they need them, cost being a factor for many of those people, but also their need might be a 24-hour scenario. Throw in COVID-19 and mandated restrictions of movement or stay-at-home orders, and the problem is compounded. A persuasive new study from the US found that a text messaging-based intervention can be a safe, clinically promising and feasible tool to augment care for people with serious mental illness. Psychologist Lynn Bender, hello. Hi, John. What's your take on this? Um, one of the things we know, and I'm not sure where that stands right now, but people were at greatest risk who'd been admitted to hospital for suicide thoughts and risk when they were released and that was often due to lack of follow-up. So they'd been in a situation where they got a certain amount of attention and help and then nothing, more or less, you know, just see you in a, at your next appointment. The addition of the text-based messaging may just represent the fact that they get additional attention and care and perhaps Outside the formality of the treatment room, um, they have the capacity to respond with a bit more honesty, I guess. You know, be, feel, feel a little freer to say how they're feeling um, rather than reporting in, in a, po a so-called positive way. When you say re respond more honestly, do you mean in terms of to the text itself? They'll, uh, because I, I, I wasn't sure that this text-based response is a back and forth scenario or um, a one-way street. So just explain it to me a bit. Well, the study uh, spoke of text coming back from participants. I presume the text is you can respond to the text. I would think it would be very almost pointless to just send out a little reminder like your friendly reminder to pay your, your electricity bill. That's, you know, that's kind of doesn't leave much room for interaction and dialogue and a sense of connection. Um, so I think if it's open to the people who are struggling responding I, and added to, not instead of, normal treatment, I think that could be really good. An interesting issue comes to mind here. You're seeing um, clients, you're still yeah. seeing clients, but of course you see them uh, either on the phone where you, where you don't actually see them, you talk to them on the phone, or sometimes you might see them in a, in a Zoom call. Do you find that they're, because you've got that physical distance, do you find that they're actually a little bit more forthright about how they're going they're, or, or even let, let off a bit more steam? Is that, a, is that 
Is that something that's presenting itself to you in your practice? It can be. I think it's a challenge for people working in this area to adjust their style a bit, to perhaps be less formal. Um, I tend to have a pretty informal style anyway. But the counselling situation also defines barriers like you enter the office, you should be dressed in a certain way, you sit where you're told to sit at a certain distance and then you're um, invited to leave. Um, And that's protective, I think, Um, and it comes from the medical model. If you see a doctor, you, you observe all those protocols. I think in the phone or the Zoom situation, I personally, and I've discussed this with some of my colleagues, you tend to loosen the boundaries a little bit. You can't really control where they sit or how they sit or if they bring a coffee or not that you, I would object to them bringing a coffee, but in some therapeutic situations, you're not supposed to bring any props. You know, you're supposed to sit in the place you're told to sit and um, you might be offered water. But um, is, this the, is this the idea of here's the couch, please, please sit there or lie, lie there type of thing? Yes, and everything's pretty well determined in a formalistic way. I think the person's in their own home. They may be more comfortable because they're in their own home. I found some of them get up to go and get a drink in the middle of the session, <laughs> come right. back, um, usually water. And uh, I have had someone go and get a wine, and I'm not going to say, you can't have a wine, we're having a session. But whereas, you know, if you wouldn't think that some someone would bring wine into their normal counselling session. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I guess they could give it a go. You know, this this suggests to me that um, COVID might have actually opened things up a little bit. That that these kind of sessions might actually, for some people, work better because it's it's taken a an inhibition away, and you know, there might be a sort of a a get real thing that's going on. It could be, and I think the conversation can flow a little more naturally. I found, for example, in a first session, I wouldn't necessarily be too challenging with someone in the first session because you want them to come back. (laughs) You don't want to frighten them off. But um, even doing something challenging like pointing out a style of behaviour that's occurring in the interaction that you wonder whether that's what's happening to them in the outside world can be very confronting if you've had little to do with them and your first interaction is on Zoom or FaceTime, you do have to work harder, I think, to engage and have permission to, in a way, be a little more challenging, which is quite often needed in certain situations. Okay. Well, let's just let's get back to the study for, for a moment, uh, the text-based intervention. Where could it go wrong? Well, it could become too stylized and formalized and impersonal, um, as I said before, and it could also be used to as a as a reassurance to the therapist. Oh, all's good, because you'd need to be very sensitive to how people were responding, as you would in a normal counselling session when people report that they're all good now, everything's resolved, totally happy. Called a flight into health, in the jargon which is, is meant to disguise something, and you could miss that. So you could be falsely reassured of the person being okay when they're actually not. I think the risks would be, as policymakers love to do, especially economic rationalists, oh, let's do this instead of the more expensive interactional stuff. 
oh, this will be um, a way to save costs and to say we've serviced X number of people. We'll just perhaps skip a few sessions or maybe we'll have shorter sessions, as I heard a professional consider on a Q&A program, actually, that we could, as we were short of therapists at the moment, we could have therapists doing shorter sessions and supplementing them online. And I'd hate to see it used as a substitute. Yeah. Similar discussions going on generally with telehealth, isn't it? That, yes. Uh, that it could end up taking the place of face-to-face uh, consultations as opposed to what is essentially just a useful tool or an, an added tool. Very good. All right. Well, look, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome, John. My pleasure. According to new market research, women are often feeling left in the dark when it comes to their recovery and healing from a caesarean section. The results of this can apparently range from unexpected pain and complications to scarring and embarrassment and general dissatisfaction with the birthing experience. Obstetrician and gynaecologist Kate Kerridge is here to talk about these findings. So, Kate, you've seen this research. What's your best your best takeaway from it? Well, I think that they have nailed the the concept overall, and that women I use the word birth experience when in when you spoke just before. It is the whole birth experience with a cesarean section that does seem to be where we're letting women down. Um, so, I I think that's genuine from knowing what they should be expecting before they go in, knowing what questions they can ask, down to things like they've spoken in this research about their scars and women being unhappy with their appearance. Um, I think that, yeah, most of the take-home message is a, a, a bit of a wake-up call and something that is interesting um, and worth discussing. Looking at the at the research, and, and look, I, I haven't actually seen the full data or even the, the scale of it really, so... Uh, I always have to kind of have that little pinch of salt when I when I look at these market research figures. But one of the issues they raise, Kate, is wound closure. Apparently, sixty nine percent of all women surveyed said they weren't consulted by their doctor on their incision closure options, which, as I understand it, stitches or staples. Is that much of an issue? And I, I'd imagine that discussion should sort of take place before you're on the table, so to speak. Well, correct, and I think that's their issue. So uh, over the overarching message is these are things that are being highlighted and stuff that we should be talking about with women antenatally. So there's a chance when you go into labour or you're pregnant that you may have a cesarean section. So that's any any person may, whether they've chosen to, whether there's a medical indication, whether something's gone wrong um, or unexpected things have happened in their labour. So everyone has a possibility of a cesarean section, yet we very rarely discuss it in much detail antenatally. And so these women are saying, you know, almost 70% weren't consulted. And I think that would be correct. But basically, you can't have that discussion in the middle of an emergency situation on the table. Well, first, first of all, one question I'd ask you, there was that concept that kept getting an airing for years. And I don't know if it's still got currency. And that's the idea of cesareans you know too posh to push it's sort of correct there's that sort of lingering attitude towards cesareans yeah has has that has that changed at all 
Um, sadly, probably not much um, in the sense that people believe that people are having cesarean because they're too posh to push, that, that sort of mindset. And I think that's basically uh, at the core of this issue is that where cesareans are sort of like a dirty word for some people and for th- that reason we assume a patient is going to want or be able to have a vaginal birth and then we therefore don't sort of have the negativity of discussing a cesarean section, which we know is, is a possibility for any woman. So I think it's because of the stigma that still is unfortunately attached in some settings to a cesarean section and we don't talk about it enough. And that's why, you know, these women are saying, yeah, I was left in the dark, partly because that's a health practitioner's issue um, and partly because women themselves, um, uh, it's a stigma for them and they're sort of saying, I don't want to be in a negative frame of mind, so let's not talk about it. And that's to their detriment, clearly. All right. Well, I might go through a few figures, mainly so to see if any of them actually resonate with the real world. Uh, it's scarring seems to be a source of discontent. Only one in three women reported that they liked their scar. More than half said that they felt their scar doesn't look good and a quarter believed that it took too long to heal. In addition, more than a quarter of the women surveyed uh, won't, rev- won't wear certain clothes due to their scar placement or size and a fifth won't wear certain swimsuits. And 17% of women don't feel comfortable showing their scar to their partner is 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 it a is it a big issue oh look i think to some people um and so that can be for two reasons one it is as we just talked about it's this sort of stigma um a sense of even failure you know it wasn't meant to be like this and and so a psychological kind of burden i think and sometimes what that represents the other side is the very real physical burden which can be due to poor wound healing or poor technique infections post-operatively and different cosmetic effects that you can get just because of patient variation but also uh, due to the type of material you use so I think you earlier mentioned stitches and staples and there's also a glue dressing that um, can be used so there are different options to try to improve from the physical perspective the scarring. Hey, I, I'm interested in that. How would you make your choice as a you know as an obstetrician between say using um, stitches and and this glue? What what would what would guide your use in such a thing? So one, it's a bit patient selection. It depends if they've got allergies, things like that. Um, you've got to avoid certain materials. So it's sort of really having the individual patient taken into consideration. But things that I look for are basically things that are going to be easy. So something that you can put, set and forget. Staples, for instance, can sometimes be dissolvable, but most of the time they're removed. So the patient has to come back. Some stitches are also not dissolvable and the patient needs to return to have them removed. So again, that might be just extra hassle or pain. Um, So I would preferentially look for something that's easy. So dissolving stitches, um, the uh, glue dressing that I mentioned, that's just something that you apply and leave. The patient doesn't need to do anything to it. So there's limited care that they need to sort of, or attention they need to pay to it when their main role now is to get on and be a mum. So for me as a practitioner, I think it's offering them something that's easy and also has a good outcome. 
Okay, so um, we all hear about the importance of sharing. And when it comes to women sharing their delivery experience, yeah. this, this survey found that a fifth of all women that, they, that surveyed said they don't share their experience with other people, stating that it's too personal. And they're afraid of being judged, that's one in five, and they're afraid of scaring their friends. I've never heard this. I mean, I, I, I listen to women all the time talking about their Birds yeah, I was going to say, I, I think it's um, it's usually sort of your rite of passage to scare your friends and most people have <laughs> their, their traumatic birth stories they want to share. So I'm not sure about that aspect, but I guess, you know, um, it, it probably goes back to the psychological aspect in a, in a way where maybe it's a sense of failure or shame or disappointment um, that they're not sharing it. I doubt that in my experience, it's because of the physical ramifications or the scarring. It's probably more probably the psychological aspect, I'd say. Listen, Kate Kerridge, great talking to you, and I hope we get to talk about something interesting soon. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Why can't we get all the people together in the world that we really like and then just stay together? I guess that wouldn't work. Someone would leave. Someone always leaves then we would have to say goodbye. I hate goodbyes. I know what I need. I need more hellos. Hey, that's Charles M. Schultz being his whimsical self. Remember him? Creator of Charlie Brown and the Peanuts from the Funny Pages. All those needy little people. I need more hellos. Get a grip. We'll be back with another episode soon. Okay? You'll be right. See you then.